Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 253. Yes, and if you want to know why we say that is because we want you to be able to track with us and maybe even go back week over week to review where we're at in the podcast plan so you can be current with what we're talking about. So make sure you jump in and, and continue to stay with us. If you have questions along the way, we want to take time to answer them as much as we can week over week in each episode of our, our, of our podcast here. There's three ways you can send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line or even, even in the DMs that you're going to maybe send us. Make sure to identify that it is a podcast question. Uh, or you can, like I said, DM us on Facebook or Instagram. Our handle is the Grove CH. Uh, so you go facebook.com forward slash the Grove CH and the same for Instagram as well. Uh, that's how you can find us. So you can send us those questions on social media too. There you go. Yeah, I was just talking with someone at church the other day where they were like, hey, I want to like build a habit of reading the Bible. Like, and I was like, oh, just jump in the reading plan. And they're kind of talking about like, I, I feel like I just need to like jump in where we're at and not try and catch up. And I was like, absolutely. Like, yes, 100%. Like, yeah, don't try, don't try and power. 200 days of the oh plan. Oh my gosh. Like, just jump in. We'll, we'll be there together. And then next year you can restart and we can do the whole Bible. It'll be fun. So anyway, uh, this week we are, we're still in, no, I was about to say still in the exile. No, we're still in the post-exilic period. Yes. So the exiles have come back, at least those who want to, for the most part. There's a, There'll be another, uh, another return that comes after. I think we're- There's two more returns technically. Is there, so it's, Well, I guess there's three returns total. Zerubbabel, Ezra. And then Nehemiah. Is he, is he another, I always count him with the Ezra return, but. Oh, see, now I'm just, now, now I might've been ah, foolish. We'll, we'll get there when we get there. That's we'll, not this week. We'll see how. We're hitting Ezra this week. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. And Esther. So uh, we're going to wrap up the book of Daniel. And so, and this is pretty, you know, we're in the prophetic side of Daniel. If you remember, it divides almost exactly in half between the first six chapters are narrative portions and the final six are prophetic. Uh, and then it's, it's some more crazy prophecy. It's very, very specific in Jan, in chapter 10. Daniel describes a terrifying vision of a man who would introduce the coming sights. And so you you read the picture and you get this idea that Daniel is legitimately trembling in fear at this message. And he talks about how he's like almost paralyzed with with fear looking at this man as, as he's beginning to tell him what's coming on. So it's really, it's really interesting. Uh, and then the vision is the same year as the Israelites were first allowed to return to Jerusalem. So in the year that King Cyrus allowed Zerubbabel to take back, which is just a fun name to say, Zerubbabel. Um, but in the year that King Cyrus allowed them to go back to Jerusalem, that's when this is going on. Uh, and if you're a history nerd, and I, I mean this. Like Evan. <laughs> chapter 11 basically takes you from the current age. Or when I say current age, I mean the age that Daniel is living in all the way to the Maccabees. Uh, and so, and, and, and literally he's just kind of talking about we... Yeah, well, here, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it and then we'll talk about it. So we get this passage here, which straight up talks about Xerxes through Alexander the Great. Uh, and this is Daniel chapter 11, verses two through four. It says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong in, uh, through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, the kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to the others besides these. Uh, so essentially, yeah, he's talking about there's going to be a king of Persia who's very wealthy. He's going to fight with Greece. He's going to lose. And then there's going to be another king who's going to rise up and essentially conquer the world. And then after he dies, it's going to be split between people who are not his sons. Uh, yeah, that's Xerxes and Alexander the Great. <laughs> so you, can, you can read that, especially the Xerxes prophecy is extremely... It's, it's, it, he, Daniel name drops Greece. He's not just saying, you know, you're going to fight against a small kingdom or like yeah. or city states or whatever. He's just like, no, yeah, Greece, Greece. That's, that's who you're going to fight. So get ready. Really interesting. After this, it goes through the Seleucid empire. Uh, and sorry. So Alexander the Great, when he dies, his empire is divided into four. The Seleucid empire is the empire that has control over, uh, Egypt. And I believe they, yeah, they have control over, uh, Israel and, uh, like Palestine that oh, yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah, so absolutely. Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, 
Uh, but anyways, I have no idea. So it's going through all of that. Eventually, it gets to Antiochus the Fourth, who was the guy who finally went far, too far for the good old Maccabees. Um, I, it's yeah. We this isn't in our Protestant canon, the the book of the Maccabees. But if you know of Hanukkah, that's what it's celebrating: is the the rebellion against the Israelites. Or sorry, the rebellion of the Israelites against the Greeks, uh, particularly when Antiochus the Fourth is like, "Hey, why don't we go sacrifice a pig to Zeus in the temple?" And then you know, <laughs> and then it's uh, it's I can't remember is Judah Maccabee is the son. I think it's it's I think it's Mattath- Mattathias Maccabee or Matthias Maccabee. Anyway, so are you no idea. Yeah, this isn't this is we're, we're, this is let's read the Bible, not let's read the Apocrypha. But not that those books are bad; they're really interesting. Uh, and then we get to chapter twelve, which we've fast forwarded to the return of Christ. At least that's how we would describe it. This is not how Daniel's describing it because obviously Christ hasn't arrived the first time yet. Uh, in this chapter, Daniel gets a some somewhat disappointing news, which is really interesting, or at least a disappointing answer to his question. Uh, it says. In verses 8 through 13, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th days. Uh, but, But you go your way, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So essentially Daniel's like, hey, what does all this mean? And God's answer is, ah, you, you don't get to know. But go and essentially, he's like, "Hey, you've done well. This is where you're going to be at the end of days, but you don't get to find out." And that's how the book ends. So, kind of a really interesting ending to Daniel. Uh, I did want to take a quick sidebar, just kind of talking about. I saw this. I was I was kind of doing some researching, trying to get some dates about when these things were happening, and then when uh, Daniel, like when Daniel's written all these different things. Um, if you are not taking the Bible at face value, which obviously you know we're Christians, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, so we're taking it at face value that Daniel's written when it is written. Um, if you're not taking it at face value, I I do still think that there are. It's very difficult to not see how Daniel is predictive. Um, and I remember what I, I was I was reading through a post as I was doing some research for it. And it was like, uh, what no one tells you is that Daniel was written in, I forgot the year, but it's in the early or the late second century BC. Uh, and he's essentially saying, this is when the book was written. At that point, it's not prophecy. It's just explaining what happened because at that point, Alexander the Great and all these things had already happened. Uh, but what that necessitates is that, A, that's not when we think Daniel's written. That's when the earliest copy that we have is. We don't have any early copies of things before a few hundred years before um, bef- before the, uh, be- before Christ. And that's just kind of the way that it works because you're writing on scrolls, you're writing, you're not etching things into stone. And so copies are going to eventually wear out. They're eventually going to be destroyed. Like think about, for instance, the oldest things that we have in the US document wise are three or 400 years old. And already those have to be cared for extremely carefully. Yep. Otherwise they're just going to break apart and dissolve. Uh, multiply that by three, four times is how long of a history we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about thousands of years of from when these things are first written to when, uh, well, in at least centuries with most of the Bible between when they're written and when the oldest copies that we have are. Uh, so it's not reasonable to expect that we would have the originals. That's just not the way that writing on papyrus works. Um, and then the other thing is, for instance, let's like, like Exodus, for instance. We don't have an earlier copy of Exodus that, that's dated between before a few centuries before Christ. Uh, but there's plenty of evidence that Exodus was written around the time of Egypt. One thing I, I, I didn't know about, and this was in that same um, that same interview I watched with Dr. John Bergsma. I should have written down his name, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Uh, but he was talking about how there's like evidence within Exodus that it was written that long ago. Um, one of them is, you know, you can you can just pull up a list of pharaohs and you could say, oh yeah, this pharaoh and this pharaoh and whatever it is. Um, but he was talking about how when in Exodus, he, God describes, here's how I want the tabernacle built. And here's the way it's going to be laid out. Um, he's saying, if you go to Egypt and you look at pictures of pharaoh's war tent, or not pictures, but if you look at drawings of pharaoh's war tent, it's the same layout. And what God's communicating is that, no, this is like, I am, I am your God now. I am now uh, like your, your pharaoh, which is the wrong way of saying it. But it's, it's using language that the Israelites would have understood. Sorry, listeners. All that to say is that um, even the best case scenario is that Daniel was written 
later than what the book than what the the Bible would say, but still would have to be pretty early on. And even like you can maybe fudge it to where it was written right when these things were ending and would still have a lot of clarity. Even then, it, it predicts the end of the Roman Empire in the in the first speech, which no one's arguing that Daniel was written after that point either. So it is kind of it's an interesting thing. Here's what I would say. As Christians, there's a lot of reasons to believe that the Bible is written when we say that it was written. Uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls when, when we're talking we, we're not saying Evan and I. We're saying, oh, yeah. saying Christian scholar, scholarly, and even the uh, criticism and all this stuff, the, the canon when it was created. So. Right. And yeah, the, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are really helpful because they're more preserved than other ancient documents would be, which is why they're, they're, early, they're earliest copies that we have of almost every book of the Old Testament. Uh, but I think as Christians, we should be encouraged. And I think when we read Daniel, it should be very faith building that we can see a book that was written before these events took place. Because most prophecy isn't specific. God doesn't like to do it that way. Uh, most prophecy that God is giving is hindsight prophecy where we like the messianic prophecies are not very specific, but now that we're on the other side of Christ, we can see how all of them were fulfilled. Daniel is kind of the one exception to that, uh, where all of a sudden he's not the one exception, but he's one of the few exceptions to that, where we get to see exactly how all that is laid out. Sorry, listeners. If you find that boring, we're I'm done now. That was just my little, that was just a little sidebar on the, and that was just a little reader's digest version. There was so much more that can be said about that conversation. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a big one. Okay, well, let's check in with Ezra. We're going to read two verses and see how good old Zerubbabel is doing. And it says this, the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. Whoa. What? Whoa there. Come on. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, of the God of Israel who was over them. Okay. Wait, we just got two new prophets we're going to meet? Heck yeah. These are our final, <laughs> not final. There's three more prophets. These are the two last ones. Or we two. end with your son. Is Joel's not date? No, Malachi. I think it's Joel. No, we did Joel already. I'm pretty sure. Joel is like, Joel's in Judah. That wouldn't, that would be really weird if the chronological plan put him here. I would have to, I would have to almost, I think, disagree with the chronological plan. Uh, and so we're going to jump into the book of Haggai. We're going to kind of jump. Is it really Joel we're going one, two, three. into Joel after Malachi? One, two, three. I, listeners, I am going to have to look into. He's going to throw a fit. I don't know about a fit. On I'm the not, 23rd, that's when all of the Old Testament ends. There's really? no such thing as the Old Testament anymore. After the 23rd. I'm going to have to tentatively look into why it's placed there. So I won't say it's Je wrong. It's, I won't say it's wrong. I will say it's, it goes against consensus. So that's really interesting. Well, we'll talk about that when we get to Joel. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry. Total side note. All good. Did you just get, you, listeners, you just get behind the curtain sometimes. We'll I just... guess there's there's four more prophets and we're talking about two of them today. Yay. Uh, so we're going to cut back and forth between Haggai and Zechariah for a little bit, which is kind of fun because we're seeing two prophets who are ministering at the same time. So we get to go between their books. Uh, Haggai is one of my favorite prophetic books in the Bible. So like we just read, Zerubbabel has led the people back to Jerusalem. They began construction of the temple that we talked about in Ezra last week. Uh, however, they stopped. And so Haggai is sent by God to warn them to not stop and that God will withhold his blessings if they don't resume work. So basically God is like, hey, there's going to be famine. There's going to be pestilence. Like if you don't finish the temple, yep. I'm not, I'm going to withhold my Get blessing back to work. You. Yep. And you know what, Aaron, here's what I love about the book of Haggai. They listen, yes. <laughs> which is like Woo! possibly for the first <laughs> time in the history of the prophets, not really for the first time, but if, for the first time in a long time, the people actually listen to the prophets. I imagine- For the first time in forever, yeah, if you will. Yeah, for the first time. I imagine Jeremiah just looking down from heaven, just be like, come on! Like you couldn't, you couldn't have done this with me before Jerusalem fell. But there you go. Uh, the people listen to Haggai. Well, they're out of punishment now. They're out of exile. That's yeah. part of it. No, I get why it happens. I just feel like, I feel like all the prophets in heaven, especially the ones who were murdered by all the kings are just like, must be nice, Haggai. Like when he when he dies and gets into eternity, like Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets are all just like, oh, wow, what a cushy job you had. You suck. You no, suck. Anyway, uh, so Haggai is sent by God to warn them that they should not stop and the people listen. Uh, and I love this picture of a prophet, a priest, and a kind of king uh, working together like God had intended. So it's these three bigger offices. Obviously, Zerubbabel is not a king. He's the governor of Judea. Um, but for... All intents and purposes, he is he is kind of the he is the closest thing to a king 
at least an Israelite king that the people of Israel have now. And remember, he's in the line of David. So Zerubbabel actually has a claim to the kingship if he if he felt like rebelling against Persia and going for that. But luckily, unlike Zedekiah, Zerubbabel is not an idiot, so he doesn't do that. Uh, and so Haggai in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, we get this picture of the three of them working together. So then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Uh, I also love how when we get to this post-exilic period, they're very much about the dates, which is cool because the, the chronological plan, sometimes you have to fudge a little bit and say, okay, where is this taking place? With these ones, it's like, no, in this exact day <laughs> is when all of it happened. And it kind of starts with Daniel and Ezekiel a little bit too. because you Like Joel, right? Like Joel. Uh, yeah. Like I, I really need to look into the Joel thing because I've always viewed Joel as a, as a contemporary of like Hosea and Jonah. So I don't, yeah. Anyway, sorry, listeners. I'm just, I'm so distracted right now. Uh, in the beginning of chapter two, we see an exhortation to Zerubbabel and Joshua to keep on with the work. And again, Yahweh declares that he is with them. That's kind of the constant uh, the constant reminder to the people that don't be afraid of what's going on around you. Build the temple. I am with you. So now let's jump over to Zechariah, Haggai's brother prophet, not actually brothers, but you know, they're just working at the same time. And the uh, Zechariah, sorry, Zechariah's call is given two months after Haggai's. And so his reminder is very similar to the reminder of the old prophets, which he does point out. So this is what uh, Zechariah's first message is. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us in our, for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Uh, so essentially what Zechariah is saying is I have the same message, which is repent and turn back to God. Don't be like your, don't be like your ancestors who heard that call. And didn't listen, which again, Jeremiah is probably like, yes, please don't do that. <laughs> uh, like, like many of the other prophets do. Uh, jumping back to Haggai, this is about a month and a half after that word from Zechariah. Haggai keeps encouraging the building to continue. Uh, this time, God uses the analogy of a corpse corrupting all of the food and make it un- making it unclean. And so he's saying that having an unfinished temple is corrupting the nation. So basically, if you had a bunch of food, but there was a dead animal carcass in the middle of it, you would say all the food would be ceremonially unclean. You couldn't eat it under the dietary laws. And so uh, Yahweh is saying in this moment, having the temple be unfinished is like having a carcass in the middle of the food. It's making all of the nation unclean. So finish it. He's basically saying, come on, guys, pick up the pace. So we're going to jump back to Ezra for one verse and see how it's going. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, uh, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Again, I just love that picture of the prophets, the priests, and the king all working together. Uh, Back to Haggai, we're going to finish the book. And I'm just going to read the whole last three verses. It says, then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judea, I'm sorry, of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Uh, so I, I kind of view this as, it's it's talking about eventually, you know, the, the empires that are over Israel are gonna fall. And also that Zerubbabel has been chosen by God. And I, I love this I kind of just kind of encouragement of, hey, good job, Zerubbabel. Uh, and it, it's almost to me, I almost view Zerubbabel as the final king of Judah. I know he's not actually, he's the governor, but he's kind of the leader that 
Zedekiah and Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Jehoahaz should have been, right? He's the, he's the leader that should have come after Josiah where he leads the people and, and does what – and Zerubbabel is not perfect, but he, he actually does what God is commanding. And so it's almost kind of – I don't know. And I almost view him as like an epilogue of the kings where he's not a true king, but he's kind of if – you, if you want to, you can end the kingship almost on a good note here. And I shouldn't say end it because Christ is ultimately the final king in the line of in the line of David, and he's the eternal king. Uh, so we go back to Zechariah, where we are treated with multiple visions that he has. Uh, the first vision is of an angel riding a horse and speaking with God, and this exchange takes place. Uh, then the angel of the Lord said, "O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years?" And the Lord answered. Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Uh, and so essentially God is saying, okay, your time of punishment is over. Like the 70 years, that was a period of exile. And remember, God commands them submit to Nebuchadnezzar, who is the first king of the exile. And essentially, I will bring you back out is, is what God is saying, but you're not going to do this on your own. You're, you're going to sit in the corner and think about what you've done for a generation, and then and then you'll go ahead and come back. Um, and so Zechariah is making the point that God is not only having mercy on Jerusalem now, he is also angry with the other nations and how they've treated them. And so punishment will be coming there as well. And we'll get to that later in Zechariah. Uh, the next vision is of four horns that scattered Israel, uh, Jeru Judah, and Jerusalem. Uh, four craftsmen are then shown who will tear down these horns. So it's the idea of these, the horns kind of represent these oppressive nations. Uh, they scattered the people of Israel, and then God is saying the horns are going to be broken apart. After that, there is a vision of a man with a measuring line. He says that he is going to measure Jerusalem, and Zechariah sees a future where so many of the exiles have returned. The walls of Jer Jerusalem can no longer contain them. They have to live outside the walls because the city is so populated. Uh, the next vision is of Joshua, the high priest, standing before Yahweh uh, with Satan accusing him. And the Lord rebukes Satan, and then this goes down, which I love this scene. It says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It kind of reminds me of the call of Isaiah a little bit, this scene, which I, and it, only this time it's not a prophet, it's, it's the high priest. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on the single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Uh, so yeah, I just love that picture of, and you'll see this language in Zechariah where Joshua is described as as a branch. Um, that brings us back to, and I'll talk about this in a little bit. But there's a there's a prophecy in Jeremiah that talks about how there will be a branch established in Jerusalem, and that God is going to use to establish His kingdom. And so it's kind of showing how Joshua is that branch, and then also how that will be fulfilled later on through Christ as well. Uh, the next vision is a golden lampstand, which demonstrates that God, uh, God's watchfulness over his people. And here we get the famous refrain of, you know, tell, tell Zerubbabel, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So essentially it, it carries on that same theme of Haggai of keep going, keep at it. I am with you. The next vision is of a massive scroll containing judgment for the wicked flying through the air. So cool stuff there. Uh, the next vision after that is a woman in a, this one's a weird one, a, a woman in a basket. Uh, Zachariah is told that the woman is wickedness. And then she's shoved back into the basket and uh, two angels come and fly the woman far away. So essentially the idea here is Israel is putting away their wickedness. They're no longer going to serve other gods. They, they, they need to learn their lesson from the exile. 
Uh, and then the final vision is of four chariots carrying the winds of heaven to all the corners of the earth, um, which I think in, in the one sense is God's judgment to all of the corners of the earth. But I think it also, you can kind of read this as perhaps, and this may, might be a little bit of a stretch, but perhaps the idea of the new covenant all of a sudden being stretched to all the corners of the earth as well. Uh, getting away from the visions of Zechariah, uh, he is then commanded to crown Joshua as a symbol for the coming completion of the temple. And again, this is to fulfill the prophecy of, Jerem uh, of Jeremiah of the branch that would sprout up and execute justice and righteousness. And then it's a reminder for us to look forward to uh, our ultimate high priest, who is Christ, who would come a few centuries later after this. Uh, jumping back to the book of Ezra, lest you think that this is myth, we get a really boring story about some bureaucratic red tape that has to be worked through. Um, I always love these parts of the Bible because when you say like it's 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 mythical, it's like, dude, who's writing a myth about this? Um, but we read that Titani is an official of King Darius and he asks Zerubbabel, hey, you're rebuilding this temple. Do you have permission to build this temple? Which also, side note, that means that the building had ceased for quite a while. If the person who's in charge is like, whoa, 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 wait, what's this? What's this going on over here? Uh, and so Zerubbabel's like, yeah, totally. And then they write a letter to Darius and Darius is like, yeah, they have permission. That's the story. <laughs> so basically, it's, it's literally just a story about uh, the Israelites confirming that they have the authority of the king to build the temple. So there you go. And then we check back in and, and, you know, things are going swell. This is Ezra chapter six, verses 13 through 14. Then according to the word sent by Darius, the king, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, uh, Shether Bonzai, I should have looked up that one. And their associates did with all diligence what Darius, the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophes prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and of Zechariah, the son of Ido. They finished their building by the decree of God of Israel during the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes the king of Persia. So boom, they finished the temple. Good deal. Love, love that for them. And then we're going to go back to Zechariah. And that's where I'm going to, that's where I'm going to finish off today is finishing up the book of Zechariah. And then Aaron's going to jump in with some more crazy stuff going on in Wait, Persia. I was supposed to prepare. Just uh, kidding. Uh-oh. Uh, so back to Zechariah chapter seven, it's a reminder that it is, uh, it's a, again, it's a reminder that's common in so many of the prophets, namely that God desires not only the ritual of worship, but genuine repentance. And the people are reminded what happened 70 years prior, which is, remember, the last generation ignores those warnings when God is like, I, I don't just want the ritual of sacrifice. I don't just want the ritual of the festivals. I want the heart behind those things as well. So the people of Israel are being reminded, don't just go through the motions because that's what got your fathers kicked out in the first place. In chapter 8, we see a prophecy of a long peace that will be with Israel now that they have done what Yahweh has commanded. I love these lines in particular. These are verses 11 through 15. Uh, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heaven shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not." So essentially, again, saying there, don't make these same mistakes. And just like I, I, I purposed to bring disaster upon your fathers for the mistakes that they made, I have purposed to bring good because of that you have upheld the covenant. So good deal. In chapter nine, we get a sudden genre shift. Uh, the book is now written in poetry instead ooh. of prose. So ooh, exciting for some literary nerds. The first oracle we see is a judgment for surrounding nations, including, but not limited to, actually, I think it should be limited to, I think I got them all, uh, but Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashad, and Philistia. Uh, so get wrecked, posers. That's what, <laughs> what I, put I legit notes. just read that in your notes, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" And then you said it. <laughs> You're welcome. Oh, it was perfect. Uh, the chapter continues with the promise of the coming king in Jerusalem, as well as a call out to the Israelites defeating the Greeks. So yeah, that's actually straight up prophesied. Where, hey, the Greeks are going to come up, they're going to take over, and uh, it's not going to be very fun. But then you're going to fight them, and you're going to win. So Maccabees. Woohoo! And chapter ten, some time appears to have passed. 
And the current leaders of Judah are leading people astray. We are told that they will be replaced. And the analogy is of a shepherd of a shepherd and sheep is used with Yahweh being angry at the shepherd he appointed and promising to rescue his sheep. I don't think this is supposed to be Zerubbabel. That's I, I would be very disappointed if all of a sudden he has kind of a <clears throat> if him and Joshua would would both have villain turns at the end. But it it could be. I don't, they're not named. So, but I, I I tend to think of this as some time has passed and there's new leaders in Judah. Uh, chapter eleven switches the genre back to prose, and here Zechariah is. Ooh. Yeah, boo. I actually I like prose. I know I'm just kidding. Uh, except in Job, the poetry in Job is real good. Of course you, of course you would say That's that. That's a good time. Suffering silence. Uh, and, and Zechariah is commanded to act out the truth of God, rescuing his people by becoming a shepherd and rescuing a flock doomed to slaughter. We haven't seen that in a long time. The prophets haven't been commanded to act out things. So Zechariah is true. he actually becomes a straight up shepherd. He goes and finds a flock that's destined for slaughter and he forces out. It says destroyed. I hope that doesn't mean killed, but like he, he, <laughs> he I, I'm going to read it as he forces out the other shepherds. Maybe he actually straight up kills them and then he saves the, he saves the sheep and God is saying, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove these bad shepherds and I'm going to save my sheep. Uh, and then chapter 12 is the final chapter and it, it's, uh, sorry, it's the, Final section, sorry, it's not the final chapter. It begins the final section of the book where we see some prophecy about the house of David, including this interesting tidbit. This is verse 10. I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps over a firstborn. So right there, just kind of showing that I love the picture of pierced, right? Because that's messianic prophecy that we see all the time. And so I think you can kind of point forward to uh, the house of David specifically piercing God. And this could be very much a poetic way of saying betraying God, but I think you can mm-hmm. also, I think you can also see Christ here as well. Uh, chapter 13 declares a coming purge of all of the idols that were once in Israel. And we see that's true. Again, once we get to the New Testament, there's there's really not a hint of idol worship being a problem amongst the Jews in Israel. They seem to have really put that away. And then finally, in chapter 14, we see kind of a disheartening prophecy and it's pro- pro- promising that Jerusalem will once again go through a painful siege and fall. Uh, this happening at the same time as specified in the previous chapter. So around the time of this messianic language, Jerusalem's going to fall. And to me, this seems to point to AD 70. Uh, and when I say AD 70, I mean Anno Domini, <laughs> the year 70, the year of our Lord 70, uh, where Jerusalem falls for, and, and the temple is destroyed for the final time because the temple has yep. not been rebuilt. So then that yep. happens almost 2000 years ago. Man, crazy. Sad. Sad. Moment indeed. of silence. No, I'm just kidding. Well, listeners, before we jump into uh, what Aaron's going to read today, uh, we do want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five-star review on whatever podcast app you are listening on, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It helps us out a ton. And if you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts, we will read it on the air and give you a shout out just because, you know, that's the kind of guys we are. We like to give our listeners shout outs. So Aaron, what's going on? Well, I will ask this first though. Have you been teased as much as I have with our Apple podcasts ratings? I have not, not even a little. So they've been oh. increasing. The ratings have been increasing. I was like, oh, cool. And then I looked to a review and there's no new reviews. So every time, every time I, it is it. bittersweet though, because the last review we got to read was from uh, the user named Redacted Cowboy, which just shared just what God was doing in his life, which was so cool. So like on one hand, I don't want to see that tes- that testimony go away from the review spot, but I keep seeing our numbers tick up yeah. and I keep is there another one? And there's not. It's so. fine because on the yeah, on the morning of recording, we'll check the reviews. Like, oh, yep. numbers went up, and then we'll go and like, oh, nope, none of just them are kidding. Written, Tease. So. What are you gonna do? Um, but yeah, in Spotify, I mean, I I think I just looked. It was like 230 five star reviews so far. So that's just oh, rad, man. Snap. It's just fun to see. Uh, see you leaning in with us and, and enjoying the podcast so far. So thanks for leaving those reviews uh, on whatever platform you listen to. So I know our podcast is hosted on Podbean. And so I know there has been some commenting back and forth between Evan and uh, some of you, our dear listeners as well. So thanks for just being a part of the community. Um, for my section, we jump back into Ezra chapter six, verses 14 to 22. Uh, which is where we pick up the temple dedication and the celebration of Passover. Uh, And I love this passage. Uh, uh, I'm going to read these four or five verses here about the response of the Israelites as they observe Passover. So it starts in verse 19 of chapter 6. It says, The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. All of the priests and Levites were ceremonially, ceremonially clean, good, because they had purified themselves. They killed the Passover lamb for themselves, their priestly brothers, and all the exiles. 
The Israelites had returned from exile, who had returned from exile, ate it together with all who had separated themselves from uncleanness of the Gentiles of the land in order to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, And I love this part. Verse 22, it says, they observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful, having changed the the Assyrian king's attitude toward them so that he supported them in the work of the house of the God of Israel. So it is, as much as it is a time of rebuilding, there is there is this joy and anticipation and hope, again, that's coming back to God's people. So we pick that up in Ezra. Uh, we'll then jump to verse or chapter 4, verse 6, which is the reign of Ahasuerus, uh, which commences. If you don't know what name I'm talking about there, it is also known as King Xerxes of Esther fame. So yeah, no one, no one calls him Ahasuerus. Uh, and the CSB does. Well, I don't, so, I don't, I don't mean translation. Yeah, it's true. I mean. Ahasuerus. That's, and I will be honest with you. I listened to the YouVersion Bible app speak this name a couple different times. So I had an idea of how to pronounce it. So, uh, cause it's not, it's not at all. I mean, now that I see the name, I'm like, oh yeah, I could totally see how it's pronounced Ahasuerus. But I think last year I said it once and then just switched to Xerxes yep. for the rest of the time. It's a whole lot easier to say with Xerxes than Ahasuerus, but it is, it is the name of the king. Uh, and this is where his reign commences. And then we shift into the book of Esther. So we get this one verse in ver- chapter four that initiates the reign of King Xerxes. And then we jump into the book of Esther. Now, Esther is a unique book because it's the only bi- book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. Um, but the implication and the reality of the Jews who still hold faithful to Yahweh while in exile is seen throughout this book, um, even though it's rooted in the historical context of Xerxes itself. And, and I know Evan just made the comment about Zechariah, I think it was in chapter 13, but the idea of like idols are no longer a part of Israel. And we see that even in the New Testament, it's really important. I think this has been like the most um, revelatory thing for me this year, reading through this plan uh, and reading through the Bible this year was just the simple fact of what we're reading right now in the, in the post-exilic time is actually very deeply impacting the New Testament era as well, where the temple worship, where the synagogues are established, where it is, even in this time with the Babylonian, with the Babylonian Empire, that there's still synagogues that there's still Jews that are remaining faithful to Yahweh and the practices that he established centuries and hundreds of years before. Uh, and so Esther, even though it doesn't mention the name of God, the implication is still there about the Jews who are being are holding faithful there. Um, Esther is a very familiar story for a lot of us in um in this, if we've been in the, the the Christian community for a long time, we are familiar with famous phrases that we'll get to. Uh, but this week, we're actually going to crank through the entire 10 chapters of Esther. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of give us quick overviews. There's a few things that I want to highlight and read because it's a little, it's not always the well-known things or things we don't see uh, as we're reading. But chapter one uh, is where we're introduced to the culture and context of King Xerxes. He throws this massive party holding nothing back in the fine china or the best things for all people. So it's not even just like the wealthy privilege, but it's it says all people are included. They're all drinking. His wife, Queen Vashti, at this time throws another party uh, in alignment with this one. So it's not like a sideways party, but it's in conjunction with the party that the king is thrown. Uh, but this one's specifically for the women of the king's palace. Uh, so it's almost like this women, the women are having a party and the men are having a party. And then it says this on the seventh day when the king was feeling good from wine. Uh, That's never a good sign when you feel good from wine. Uh, He then calls for Vashti, his his wife, to come before him and the men he's with to show off, to dance, because he wants to show them how beautiful and how good looking and how attractive she is. In other words, he's like, hey, check out my smoking hot wife. Uh, She refuses, uh, and that leads to a lot of problems. And so it says King Xerxes at this point is angry. He consults with his wise men. His wise men come up with this idea that in essence, if this is a if this goes unpunished, then the women in the kingdom are going to follow suit and rebel against their husbands. So therefore, you should punish her, remove her as a wife, and remove her as queen. I mean, it seems like sound logic to me. Yeah, I guess. I mean, what are you going to do? Um, I'm not going to agree with that actually. So, <laughs> um, so she is removed for the disrespect shown, uh, and King Xerxes initiates that because he agrees with the counsel of the wise men. We jump to tap chapter two, and then now the search is on. Now, this is where we see throughout the kingdom, all the beautiful young women are gathered together, collected, and then they go through this year-long work of beauty treatments and then are presented to the king. 
in essence, it's like um, I, I remember years ago when we were preaching through Esther in my old church in, in Spokane, it was literally described to be like a, a, it was the bachelor in, in the kingdom of Babylon. That checks out. Yeah. So he had his pick of any of the women. And so uh, except he wasn't giving roses, he was saying, hey, you're my queen. So that was the status. It wasn't like a whittle it down to two, but it was of all the women. Um, so this is what happens. All of the single virgin women are collected. They're given beauty treatments and presented before the king um, and to find who's going to be the most pleasing to King Xerxes so that way that she can become the next queen. In this chapter, we're introduced to Mordecai, who's the cousin and legal guardian of Hadassah, which is Esther. And I probably didn't say her, her Hebrew name right, but this is Esther. Um, she also goes through these treatments of beauty uh, to be ready to be presented to the king. King Xerxes likes her, chooses her to be, he gives her the rose, she accepts, and she becomes the next queen uh, alongside Xerxes. And so then we get this little moment that I thought was worth highlighting in chapter 2, verse 19 to 23. It says, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background for her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. In other words, he didn't want... Esther to be known as one of the members of the Jewish community. He wanted to keep that a secret. And I don't, I don't really, we find out why later because they weren't really, they were exiles. They were not, they were slaves. They were not viewed as very well regarded very highly. Um, So she hadn't revealed who she was yet, her ethnicity. She obeyed her uncle's orders, who was also her guardian. Um, And then in verse 21, it says, during those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther. She told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Remember that verse because it plays out later on. Chapter 3 now, we're introduced to a man named Haman who in essence gains a whole lot of favor from King Xerxes. He was honored. Uh, he becomes in essence the second to King Xerxes. And he was honored every time he'd walk to the, to the city, the King's Gate, by 99% of the people. They all bowed. They all honored him. But 1%, uh, part of the 1% was a man that I've already, we've already met named Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow, would not pay honor to Haman. And Haman was infuriated by this. It really triggered him for whatever reason. Uh, so he becomes mad. He finds out that Haman or finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. And so Haman decides to take a vendetta to eradicate the entire group of the Jewish community. And so he created this plan to have the Jews killed on a very specific day and gets the ring that he was given by King Xerxes. It establishes and writes this order. It goes out to all of the provinces, all of the people throughout all of the land. land. And this this edict has been signed. It cannot be revoked at this point. Uh, and so finally, we got, get to chapter four, where we, where we see Mordecai finally hears about this edict. He tears his clothes and he's mourning. He's weeping and wailing at the king's gate, creating a stir, drawing attention. And Esther is informed of everything going on. So then she actually tries to get mortified to calm down, stop making a scene in my words. And so she sends him some clothes to put on and he refuses. And it's this big dramatic ordeal uh, where in turn, he gives the the servants of Esther, the eunuchs and the servants of Esther, the edict. He gives them the, 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 the law that was written by Haman to give to Esther so she can see and read it, followed by telling them to tell her that she needs to go before the king and plead for the lives of the Jews, of her people. She sees it. She reads the edict. She responds through her servants to, because this is not a one-on-one conversation. This is a a game of telephone. It's a messenger sent back and forth. Um, And she says that if she goes, she can only go before the king if she's summoned. If not, there's a potential she will lose her life. Um, And in chapter four here is where we get two very famous lines that are, are well known in the story of Esther. Mordecai, in essence, just says, either way, your life is going to be lost because don't think you're going to escape the eradication of the Jews just because you're queen. This edict super supersedes your position and you have, in essence, nothing to lose. And so then he, he says this famous line in chapter four, it says, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position position for such a time as this. Um, 
And then in response to that, we get her infamous response where she tells all – he tell, she tells through her servants to Mordecai to communicate to all of the Jewish community to fast and pray for three days. And at the end of the, the fast, she will go before the king. And then she says this, if I perish, I perish. So chapter four is a very familiar passage because of those two famous phrases. And we get this – it ends chapter four with the statement of if I perish, I perish. We jump to chapter five, where we see the end of the fast is there. She approaches the king in the inner court. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Is she going to be, is he going to tip his gold scepter towards her, which then affirms and acknowledges and invites her to come forward? If he doesn't, he actually would then summon the, in essence, the, the death of whoever's in the inner court. The king extends the scepter, acknowledging her and calling her forward. And she is told by King Xerxes to Esther, ask whatever you want up to half the kingdom and I'll give it to you. Uh, And she requests the presence, his presence at a banquet along with Haman. The king accepts. Haman goes home and celebrates this. But then we get this moment in chapter five, verse nine through 14. It says that day, this is after he was told and it was informed of him that he was invited to this banquet with the king alone to this banquet by the queen. And it says that day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble and feared his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Verse 11. Then Haman described for them in his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over all the other officials on the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. In verse 13, he says this, Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, verse 14, Have, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. So we end chapter five with this moment where Haman's throwing a hissy fit because Mordecai won't stand and tremble before him. So he goes and explains, I have all these great things, but none of it, but my joy is robbed because of Haman. They've advised, build a gallows so you can hang him on, go in the morning to talk to the king. And, and he agrees, has the gallows built. And then we jump into chapter six. In the middle of the night, the king... Of King Xerxes cannot sleep. So he calls for the historical records to be read to him in order to help him sleep. I said it's a lot like reading Leviticus today. Whenever you don't sleep, just read the book of Leviticus. It'll help you fall asleep maybe. Um, it's not real truth, but I like it. He's, re- he's revisiting the historical account. He finds and is reminded that Mordecai was the one who saved his life from assassination. And then he asks what has been done for him. He's told nothing. And so at this point, Haman is coming in the morning to then ask for the for Mordecai to be hanged on the gallows he erected, and the king before Mord- Haman can ask him says, "Hey, who's in the who's in the court outer court?" And the his servants say, "It's Haman. Invite him." And I have to ask him a question. He so Haman summoned into uh, the chambers with the king or the the inner court with the king, and asked what should be done for someone the king wants to honor. Now Haman, who is a very brilliant, humble man thought that the king would want to humble or honor him. Sarcasm on humble and brilliant. So he suggests this massive public display of honor, put him on the king's horse, give him a king's robe that he wore, have the, one of the most trusted officials in all of, uh, of your kingdom, escort him around publicly in the, in the square, shouting, this is, what the, this is what happens to the one whom the king wants to honor. So he, he thinks he's going to get this treatment. So the king likes what Haman says. And then he says, Haman, here's what I need from you. I need you to grab the man Mordecai, do exactly what you have said, and parade him through the, 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 the courtyard, declaring this is what the king wants to do to someone who's honor. Haman does it because he's obedient to the king. But remember, Haman was coming in to ask for Mordecai to be hanged on the gallows he just erected. He, in turns, is the one escorting Mordecai around to be honored. And this is the one that Haman hates the most. And so it humiliates Haman. So after this moment, after this honoring goes out, he then goes home, complains to his wife and his friends, just in time for the servants of Esther to come before him and escort him to the bank banquet. 
But before he leaves, we get this prophetic wisdom moment from his wife. It says this in verse 12 of chapter 6, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. So Haman's on his way, embarrassed and humiliated. Verse 13 says, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. Now, I don't know about you. If I have trusted friends and my wife and I have this humiliating moment, the last thing I want to hear is the fact that the one guy who I want to kill, the one guy, not that I have a guy I want to kill, but if the one guy that I am the most frustrated with and I'm told that I'm not going to overcome him, that's not going to bring any kind of comfort to me at all. I'm going to be more irate and frustrated. But it says this in verse 14, why they were still speaking within the king's units, eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. So we have this moment, Haman is humiliated, he's lamenting, and then he's immediately ushered to this, this dinner, this banquet that Esther created. And then we get chapter seven, and I'm just going to read it. It's 10 verses. And this is what happens. It says, the king and Haman came to the feast with Esther, the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and questioned Queen Esther, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? And this is where you can almost feel Haman start to squirm a bit. It says, Esther in verse 6 says, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from there, went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. That's a big no-no, by the way. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. Verse 10, they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. And this is what the, this is what you would call absolute irony. Um, tragically, what the reality of what happened is the thing that Haman planned for Mordecai ended up happening to himself on the very gallows he built because of his hatred for the Jewish people because of Mordecai. And that's where chapter seven ends. We jump into chapter eight, where the story kind of picks up speed a little bit here, where uh, Haman, or Esther is given Haman's estate. Mordecai is then elevated to Haman's seat. And then through conversation with the king, there's another edict that is written uh, because in, in uh, Babylonian law, you can't remove a law that's been written. Uh, so what happens is they write another law or an edict, an amendment, if you will, that is written to empower the Jews to fight and defend themselves against anyone who would attack them, against those who hate them. And so uh, this edict is written, it's it's marked with the king's ring, so it, means it becomes a law that can't be removed. Uh, in chapter 9, we see that the Jews defended and defeated all those who take their lives. Um, we're told that they asked for an extra day to finish killing those who hated them. They were granted the, ten- the extra day, and so they killed the extra 300 or so people who hated them, as well as granted the permission to hang uh, the 10 sons of Haman. Uh, and then it says on the 15th day, of uh, of the month. Uh, There's the 13th and 14th for this defense and extension of defense to protect themselves. And then the 15th day, it says it was a day of rest and a holiday or Purim uh, where they celebrate and give gifts, which is actually still celebrated today in Jerusalem in some of the outlying areas in Jerusalem. Uh, Purim, which is like late, like mid to late March, like the 20, March 20th in that ballpark is when Purim happens. I only know that because I Googled it. Um, hey, way to go. But this was a bit, so this is something, the reason why Purim is celebrated is because it goes back to this time of Esther where um, in essence, God provided, and again, it doesn't say it specifically in Esther, but God provided protection based upon the elevation of Mordecai. Um, and so it's a celebration and it's a feast. The Jewish people are saved um, because of the edict and because of, of Mordecai's 
protection and provision for the king as well as the elevation based upon uh, the context we just read. And then we get chapter 10, uh, which again, I think is a really important piece uh, to this whole conversation. This is the last chapter of Esther. It says this in verse one, it says, King Ahasuerus imposed the tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores. All of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and, de- and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him, have they not been written in the book of historical ev- events of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew, and this is important, was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue the prosperity for his people and to speak well, to speak for the well-being of all his descendants. And so Esther is a phenomenal book about a queen, but I actually think one of the underlying characters that we don't spend enough spend enough time with is the person of Mordecai. Um, and he was the one that because of his, his act, because of his uh, position at the king's gate, because of what he overheard, because of what he was able to do to protect the king, uh, as, all, as well as protect Esther, ended up in turn protecting his own people. Uh, and you see this incredible ending exclamation point to Mordecai's life uh, at the end of Esther. At the end of this week, we also shift after we finish Ezra, or not, not <laughs> after we finish Esther, we jump back into Esther. Uh, we jump back into Ezra. Speak clearly, Aaron. It, yeah, My goodness. They're hard names. Uh, and we read chapter four, verse seven to 23. Xerxes' reign is over here, and we are now introduced to his son, Artaxerxes. Uh, and we find there is opposition again to the building of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and so there's this moment where he's Artaxerxes is written and said, hey, you might want to look this up in the history books to make sure this is accurate and true because this is an evil city. There, It's a full of rebellion. Uh, they don't serve you. They won't serve you at all. Uh, and so Artaxerxes actually commands a pausing of the building of the temple or the city of Jerusalem until he can find out historically whether that's true. Then we jump forward in, in the book of Ezra to chapter 7 which then details the arrival of Ezra. And we talked about a little bit already in, cha- in chapter six, where uh, Evan, you had in your section, that section of uh, that portion where Ezra has arrived, um, where, either, where this details the actual arrival of Ezra, who's been given a letter from Art- Artaxerxes himself. Uh, but we get this little note about Ezra himself in chapter seven, starting in verse six. It says, he came up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he requested because of the hand of the Lord was of God, his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So like a four to five month journey, FYI, from Babylon to Jerusalem. So it was not some like quick little weekend trip. It was a long time journey. Uh, And it says he arrived since the gracious hand of God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so you get this picture of who Ezra is, what he's about. He arrives in Babylon. We see in chapter seven with a letter in hand from Artaxerxes, granting him permission as well as favor to continue the building of Jerusalem. And not only that, but also that the surrounding provinces and the king's, uh, in essence, the king's access to resources and wealth are commanded to to support Ezra, whatever he needs up to a certain amount. And then we get into chapter eight. So uh, before we get to chapter eight, it's just Ezra is on his way. He gets approval. So when we read in chapter four, it's paused. And then Artaxerxes does the work, finds the research and affirms and confirms that the building of the city of Jerusalem is historically accurate and allowed. He allows it to continue. He even tells uh, through a letter to the surrounding provinces to allow Ezra and the people to build the city as well as give them the resources they need to build it. Uh, And then we see in chapter eight, it's a detailed journey of the family heads and the records of who went with Ezra to Jerusalem, uh, the genealogical genealogical record. You're welcome, Kathy, for genealogical. Um, She's going to laugh at that one. But uh, you see this record of who went with Ezra back to Jerusalem uh, and following the five-month journey back, as well as the preparation to arrive into the city. And that's where we finish the reading this week Boom. is they're back with Ezra into the city of Jerusalem with the permission again to rebuild. Hey, remember, you always need the king of Persia's permission it's true. at this point. Uh, all right. Well, that wraps it up for this week's readings, at least. Uh, but that doesn't, that's not the last section we have today. First, we're going to talk about what we learned today. 
I, I said earlier that Haggai is my favorite prophetic. I don't know if I, I shouldn't say favorite, but it's one of my favorites just because they listen. Like the people of God actually listen to their prophet. Uh, and so for me, my application would just be learning from our mistakes. Um, and I think that's what we see in the post-exilic period is multiple times the prophets are reminding them, hey, don't look at the mistakes of your fathers and do the same things. And the prophets have been saying that for generations. And what do the people of Israel keep doing? Making the same mistakes as their fathers. <laughs> and so it is heartening to finally see like, hey, you know what? Maybe I need to learn from what, I, from what I've done. And, and this has been an application point for me for the last few weeks, just because it's kind of the part of the Bible that we're in. Um, but it's also a reminder that we are not too far away from God that we can learn from our mistakes, that we can repent, uh, and that God is there waiting for us. Uh, even if it's after moments of pain, like with the Israelites, it was after a moment of exile and all those different things. But uh, God was still very much willing and open-armed and welcoming them back to Jerusalem and, and to worship again. So it's a reminder for us that we are not too far away from God's forgiveness. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, and my, I mean, mine, it's easy because the story of Esther is so incredible, right? So I could talk about the idea of God's provision, God's protection, God's faithfulness. Um, and even the risk that Esther walked into saying, if I perish, I perish, even the risk that Mordecai did in not honoring Haman and not standing like, um, but those aren't the things that I actually want to highlight. <laughs> uh, what, what for me is just, it's, it's been recurring for me the last, I think, several weeks as well. And it's not just because of the Bible, that portion of the Bible we're in, but also because like, it's just, it's just incredible to think about as we come up and we're coming to the gospels in just a few short days, we're going to be reading, we're going to be finishing up the book of uh, uh, of Joel in the Old Testament, and then we're going to be starting a new, the New Testament the next day, and and just the connection and the foundation with which God is 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 going to be using and developing and creating His people into the future of where the church is birthed and launch launched. It's just remarkable to me to see um, how God uses the journey, the story, and, and the the faithfulness. Um, and I mean that word intentionally, the faithfulness of his people, even through Esther and even through the coming out of exile and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple first and then rebuilding the walls in the book of Nehemiah. Like God is, God uses those things to establish his kingdom, to establish and, and, and to build the foundation in anticipation for his son to arrive. Um, and it just, it's just a simple reminder to me, like there's nothing in my, in my story or journey that is, that is wasted, that God can use and redeem every bit of it to then shine brightly the hope and the truth of the gospel. Uh, and so it, it kind of falls in line with what you're saying already, Evan, is the fact that we're, we're not, we're not too far gone. Like we, there, there is, there's grace and there's, there's an ability to still like, the mistakes don't discount us. Um, but I mean, it's a phrase that I've heard for years now, the idea of like, our, there's nothing in our story that's wasted. Um, and even if it's blips, even if it's moments of rebellion, even if it's moment, like whatever the case is, like nothing in our stories is wasted. And even as we're seeing this build up uh, to the end of the Old Testament era, where then there's that 400 years or whatever of silence, and then the New Testament launches. Um, it's just still that foundational principle and that foundational truth that God is using the stories and the journey of his people to prepare for the way of his son, which is the hope of the world. Uh, and so that's the, that's the beautiful tension I feel like is that, the, yes, our mistakes don't disqualify, discount us. Um, and nothing in our stories is wasted. It's always such a great reminder. So that's that's the big thing for me. No, I thought that was great. Uh, well, we did have a question come in this week, so let's go ahead and answer that. Okay, so it says, the description of the temple in Ezekiel, will it ever be built? The passage ends with God saying it is where he would dwell forever. So the suggestion is yes, but there's a lot of stuff in there about how the priest will enter the holy place and there will be sacrifices and sin offerings and trespass offerings for where you go without permission. Uh, but I thought with the coming of Christ, sacrifices and sin offerings are like we uh, and the like are no longer needed. So what's the point of that part of the temple? Okay, so there's a couple different things going on here. Um, in the new heavens and the new earth, as described in Revelation 21, we're specifically told there is no temple, that, that God is acting as the temple. So I, I do not think that this is a final thing. And I might have said it the other way because I always get this mixed up between Revelation and Ezekiel. Um, I might have said the opposite during the episode. So if I did, that's my bad. Um, I think there's a few different ways you could interpret this. Um, number one, that this is the temple that Zerubbabel should have built. 
and instead they built a much smaller one. Um, if that's the case, this could also be why perhaps the, the glory of the Lord doesn't fill the temple when it's dedicated because it's not the one that was supposed to be built. Uh, there's some, if you're into the thousand year, uh, that's a weird way to say it. Uh, if your interpretation of Revelation uh, includes the the thousand year earthly reign of Christ, it could be a building that is built during that period. And with that interpretation, the sacrifices are not for the forgiveness of sin, but rather they're kind of as a memorial to Christ. Um, And then the other thing it could be, and I think this is where I land on it, but this is a very, this is very much an open-handed question. Like a lot of the things in Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation, uh, there's not clear interpretations. Uh, But I think where I land on this is that it is a symbol of God dwelling with his people forever. And so the reason why the temple is more grand in Ezekiel is because it's communicating that the way that God will dwell with his people is going to be in a more grand way than it's ever been before. Um, But like I said, very open-handed question. You could sway me on any of the possible, and I'm sure there's other interpretations that I'm not even thinking about of what what could be. Um, That's kind of the nature of prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled is it's going to be very hard to nail down exactly how it's going to happen. And then when we get to the other side of eternity, all of a sudden we'll be able to look back and say, oh, oh, duh, that's what God is talking about in this moment. But when we're on this side of prophetic fulfillment, sometimes it's hard to do. Yeah, I actually would would argue it's it's indicative of what eternity will actually be like, where there will be sacrifices again. And I'm just kidding. Uh, totally messing. Going back uh, to Old Covenant. <laughs> uh, no, I think you're right, man. I think it is it is a picture of the grandiose reality of eternity and and even the fulfillment uh, of of the temple worship and things like that found. So, um, so is it going to be built? Uh, yeah, but I think it'll be built by the hands of God, and I think He's already been building it, and will usher in His new kingdom. So that's what that's what I think. But again, it is a very open handed conversation um, that that there's no right or wrong answer right now. Well, I guess there's some wrong answers, but yeah. there's plenty of right options. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those things where I always feel bad when we get. Uh, prophetic interpretation question because usually it's like here's the options here's kind of where i land take, yeah take, take them for what you will yep all right well that good does, question that does wrap it up for this week's episode of let's read the bible as a reminder we are a podcast of the grove church but we're not the only resource of the grove church you can find all of other resources on our website grove.church under the media tab and also if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the grove church does you can also do that on our website there's a give button in the upper right hand corner and hey Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.